I'd like you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. It's on page 552, if you're following the Bible. And I'm going to read from verse 11 to the end. You all know the story, I'm sure. Jesus, speaking in parables, says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called you a son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf you, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. and never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. <coughs> and he was lost and now is found. I wanted to notice something that I just noticed. The younger son, or the younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And then he says these words. So he divided to them his livelihood. He divided to them, not to him, his livelihood. In other words, he gave both his sons the inheritance at that point. And when we come to the end, he says, 
You didn't even give me a goat that I might marry with my friends. And yet, the beginning says, he divided to them his livelihood. And that's got some bearing upon uh, what we'll be looking at tonight. Now, unfortunately for us, Easter happened upon us and has interrupted our studies in chapter 2 for two weeks. And therefore, it may be difficult to cast our minds back to our last study, which was the first study of chapter 2. But the gist of what I talked about last time is that Paul is telling us that the atrocities or the the atrocious list of evil that we saw and read and studied at the back end of chapter 1, those things that, in my experience anyway, made my flesh creep, those things that made me think of the actions of others, they were really referring to me. Now these lists of uh, evil and sinfulness and immorality and idolatry that we find at the end of chapter 1, which, which is, makes awful reading, Paul is referring to me. You know, I found that really uh, disturbing, I suppose, when we, when we looked at it last time. They were showing me where I stand. They were displaying my heart and they were underlining my need of God's revealed righteousness and that none of my own righteousness comes up to the standard which I expect of myself let alone what God demands from me you know my level of expectancy is is there and my achievement is so far below my level of expectancy my level of expectancy in you is far above my actual activity in me. And therefore my, says Paul, my sort of uh, judgment of you or these people that we were looking at comes back and judges me because I am exactly the same as them. Paul, I have you, uh, I'm in the same boat as everyone else. I need God's righteousness to clothe me, to cover me, to make me accepted in the beloved. You know, and we looked at that song uh, of top ladies. Not the labour of my hands can fulfil the Lord's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And here is the word. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. No, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is not a sad indictment upon the world. It's not even a sad indictment upon the Gentiles at large. Those verses are a sad indictment upon me. And unless I, and unless and until... I receive such a a revelation of that. I will always remain dependent upon my own righteousness and therefore remain under the righteous wrath of God. And that's what we looked at last time. You know, it really, really put us in our place. And that brings us to um, 
the verses that we're looking at in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read the first five verses uh, to us. Um, Therefore you are excusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Ooh, these are quite heavy words for us to be thinking about again tonight. Nobody can be um, sort of boiled down to just one uh, hyphen word, self-righteousness. Or we could call it the sin of self-righteousness. No, self-righteousness is just as much a rejection of God and it's just as much a misunderstanding of his character as the self-centered immoral indulgence that we looked at at the end of chapter 1. Now you think about what we talked about there. The immorality and the degrading place that man finds himself when he rejects God and God lets him go. And yet self-righteousness. Now you put that into your mind. Because we are so prone to be self-righteous. Self-righteousness is as much a rejection of God as that. It's much, as much as a, of a misunderstanding of God's character as that. You know, the atheist, you know, the atheist, are, they are high profile, especially in today's society. We've got this new aggressive atheism uh, that, uh, that has gripped the world. Where atheists are not just lying down, not believing in God, but they are uh, aggressively um, bringing the uh, message to the world and um, challenging the church at every turn and trying to win the the hearts and minds of society. They are so aggressive. Now these people, they may reject and suppress the existence and the nature of God. They are found poor in scorn on the idea of his wrath. But they don't understand that it is grace alone that keeps the final outpouring of that wrath at bay. They are so um, unable to understand that the, the long suffering of God, they point, you know, even in Paul's, in Peter's day, you know, they say, well, where is the promise of his coming? You know, we can't be there. Where is the promise of his coming? You know what Peter says? The Lord is not slack concerning promises. His promises, as some would count slackness, but his, but his long-suffering towards us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the, the glory of God's grace. 
His long-suffering, His patience, His endurance. Can you imagine what He is experiencing as this world goes on and on and on and men are becoming more and more blasphemous every day. And He is yearning. I heard one man said that when we look at evil and see how awful and atrocious it is, it is like an iceberg that has four-fifths of itself under the water that we can't see. And yet God sees the whole lot. You know, it must be tearing his heart to pieces. But here is the people that he created, the people that he loved, the people that he sent his only son to die for, and yet their immorality knows no bounds. And yet where is the flash from the sky? You know, where is the earthquake that swallows up these people? It's not there. Why? Because God is long-suffering. He is patient because He wants them to have an opportunity to repent and come to faith. You are not, but that long-suffering and that patience is painted by those who mock as the inability to do anything at all about the situation that we find ourselves in. No, Paul says the same thing to us here in verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, of his forbearance, of his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know, here he isn't talking about the indulgent sinner of chapter 1. He is talking about the self-righteous man of chapter 2. Someone who does admit the existence of God, but actually sees no need of Him. I don't know what's the worst. You know, when we go out and witness to people, what is the worst? When we talk to people who will tell you, I don't believe in God, or when we talk to people who say, I believe in Him, but I don't need Him. I don't know what is the worst. But we have the two. In chapter 1 we have the one. Ones who don't believe in God. In chapter 1. In chapter 2 we have those who believe in God. But actually see no need of Him. Why? Well because I'm doing alright on my own. Thank you very much. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm getting this done. You know what? We've all met the people who sees no wrong in themselves. Who sees no need of repentance. Because well I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't swear. I don't beat my wife up. There's no way I'm going to steal or defraud or hurt. So there's no need of cleansing. There's no need of um, of salvation. There's no need of repentance. There's no need of grace. Why do I need grace? Why do I need the gift of righteousness when I I am quite happy with my own? I don't need you as. I've got my own. Yes, the, the wrath of God. Yes, those people over there, they deserve it. They deserve it. They need a saviour. They need someone to come and give them a gift of some kind or another. But me, me, surely glory comes to me. Because I am good and I am upright. And I am adding to the, to the community and to society that I belong to. Glory comes to me. Wrath comes to them. But glory comes to me, says this person that we find in chapter 2. But oh, if they only knew 
that God's goodness, God's forbearance, God's long-suffering was holding back the tumult of his wrath even upon them in order to give them opportunity to humble themselves and to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. No such a sense is as much a contempt for his kindness as that of the atheist. And in it sad that neither can see their need of God. One because they don't believe in him. One because they don't need him. And that's the type of world that we've been brought to to minister into. He hasn't made it easy for us, has he? <laughs> but if you don't just go into the community and find people who are longing to find God, you've got those who don't believe in him, and you've got those who know about him but find no need of him. No such a stance is a contempt of his kindness. Exactly the same as the atheist. So in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, we have these two sets of people. The self-centered and the self-righteous. Now, if you can cast your minds back to the last time we were here on a Thursday night, uh, you would have remembered me contrasting the attitudes of two brothers in crime. The two brothers in crime who hung one each side of Christ at Calvary. One had a revelation of God's grace on an understanding of his sinfulness. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Now that's the, the encouragement for us as Christians in this world today. That if someone has way down the, the road of sin as he can find grace in Christ then there is hope for us to go out and find people to come to Christ when we bring the message of the gospel. But of course the other one had no revelation at all. He stayed in the dark. His heart was impenitent, unrepentant, even to the point of, even to death. And he lost his opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God because he saw no need of the person that he was hung in Beside, And they were the two uh, brothers uh, in crime that we looked at last time. But tonight, as you will uh, obviously know by now, that we want, I want us to consider the two brothers, another set of brothers, two brothers of the long-suffering father that Christ spoke of in Luke chapter 15. Because in that parable, and obviously you would have seen it, uh, as I've been talking, it's so simple to see. In the parable, uh, we have the exact lesson that Paul is setting out for us here. On the one hand, you have the self-indulgent son, whose actions resemble that of Romans chapter 1. He squandered his father's money and despised his provision. And he spent it on his own indulgences of the flesh. You know, we could very easily sort of spell out the things that the prodigal son got up to. And we need not do that. We've already read it in Romans chapter 1. You know, on the other hand, we have the elder son who stays, who obeys, who on the surface of it remains faithful to his father 
And yet we know, as we read that story, we know that both those sons were lost to the father. I remember preaching many, many years ago when I preached on this, the, the prodigal son, when I, before I ever became a pastor. And I saw that um, when the, the prodigal son came back and said, I no longer am worthy to be called your son. I want to be called, I want to be your hired servant. And the father saying to him, I remember saying it, that he says, I got two more servants and I need now. I don't need you to be a servant. I don't need your brother to be a servant. But here you are wanting to be servants when you are sons. Live in the light of the revelation of sonship. But you see, they didn't. And they were lost to the father. You know, we hear so much when we hear the preaching of the prodigal son. We hear so much of the misdemeanors of the younger son. And we're appalled that he could ever treat his father in such a way. But the self-righteous eldest son has a lot to teach us tonight. He answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. You never give me a kid or a young goat that I might be merry with my friend. Don't you know that I, I don't smoke? I don't drink. I never beat my wife. I won't steal or defraud. I don't even swear or hurt anyone. The self-righteous man. And then he goes on. Because the self-righteous man has got to have um, something to compare himself with. Remember the, 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 the Pharisee when he was up in, uh, in the temple praying. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this man. You see, if you're self-righteous, you've got to have someone to compare yourself with. And here is the, it's exactly, it's, it's classic that this man, he's saying, look, I, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other. And then, but as soon as this son of yours come, he's devoured his livelihood with harlots. You have killed the fatted calf for him. But you see, the sad fact of the matter is, they were both as lost as each other. Because the father was a lonely man standing by the gate with one son far away from him that way and the other son as far away from him that way. Both are lost. The father knows neither of them. There is no relationship whatsoever. There is no interaction. They are lost. You know, as far as the father is concerned, there is no difference between either of them. Now wouldn't that be a revelation to the righteous people in the world today? Especially those people who have made an art form out of religion. Out of serving God. But not knowing Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. The one who dealt with their, yes, their sins. Yet upon a cross. But they were their sins. They were my sins. Ah, but don't you re can't you remember what I just said? I don't smoke. I don't drink. I. But all those other things. Yes, they need. They need salvation. They need to repent. Yes, I'm so glad that you're working on my other brother. But me, I don't need it. I've been here all the time. I'm doing. I'm being. But the trouble is, 
written over both of them lost lost both are lost you know look at their description in verse 5 in verse 5 of our passage that we're dealing with tonight with your hardness and your impenitent heart or the NIV would say but because of your stubbornness and you were unrepentant heart. I read the, the whole of that, uh, that, those couple of verses in, in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now those two words, hardness and impenitent heart. If you were to go to the Old Testament... Those two words are used exclusively for those who are guilty of idolatry. Idolatry. Now here we are, we have the, uh, the indulgent, the self-indulgent, and we have the self-righteous. And both are described as idolatrous. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Remember when Moses was interceding after the incident of the golden calf which was a, a terrible display of idolatry on the children of Israel not long after they had seen their God do amazing things you know Sunday night uh, listening to the boxing match the bout when David was preaching you know it was amazing how this single entity little God that Pharaoh knew nothing at all about could destroy the might of, uh, of Pharaoh just like that with the breath of his mouth he drowned them all and these people were looking at this and yet within months perhaps they were looking to a golden calf what on earth you know they'd seen the Nile destroyed they'd seen the moon destroyed they'd seen the sun destroyed they'd seen the frogs destroyed they'd seen everything destroyed Egypt as a god was destroyed and yet straight away they look into a golden calf that they had to take off their fingers first put into a pot and melt and shape now that's how good this golden calf was he couldn't even shape himself but that's what they were looking to you and Moses he had to intercede on their behalf with God and in verse 27 of Deuteronomy 9 he says uh, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Jacob do not look on the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. And those two words are the same two words that we find in our passage today. The stubbornness that's why I read the NIV I think because the word is exactly the same. Stubbornness and unrepentant heart. These righteous people righteous people Yes, they may have turned their back on the idols of the world. You won't find them committing adultery. You know, you won't see them spewing in street corners in drunkenness on a Saturday night. You won't see them glaring at pornography. They won't, you won't find them greedy and things like that. But what is in their hearts? What is in their hearts? They find their self-worth in their morality. Their saviour is their rule keeping. And they worship their own goodness. You know, God forbid, 
that such a description should fit anyone who comes into Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. But we think that because of our morality and because of our goodness and because of our rule keeping and because of our religion that we are right with God. Because this passage of scripture is telling us that we are as idolatrous as any other person that has ever walked the earth when we worship at the altar of self-righteousness. Because God, Paul goes on in this passage of scripture, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's not talking to the sinners of chapter 1. He's talking to the self-righteous of chapter 2. You know, I believe that even in this country today that this is more of a problem than that. This is a massive problem. The sin in the world. But there's an awful lot of self-righteousness in the world as well. And it is still both bound for the wrath of God. You can remember the words of Christ as he commissioned his disciples on the Mount of Olives just before he left the earth. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know, and I've often said that such a, a commission is quite universal. But tonight I want us to think it's quite specific as well. Because in fact it tells me that the gospel is needed by every person on the planet. Every person. And I think not sure if there's 7 billion of us walking about today. More are joining every day and every one of them every single one of them needs the gospel preached to them you see that righteousness counts for nothing with God as does sinfulness because both the self-indulgent and the self-righteous stink in the nostrils of God why? Because the crux of the gospel tells us that righteousness has just one single solitary source. And that is God. And because he has revealed it to us through Christ, it is possible to be received by every one of us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good. The bad news is that it cuts him down to size and it cuts him down to size and when they are both cut down to size they will cry out to the Lord that's how it works, that's how the gospel works that's why we are only a few and the place is teeming with people because they're either in this camp or in that camp and both of them are lost now trusting in your own righteous righteousness means that you are rejecting his. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 but of him you are in Christ Jesus and listen to these words they are absolutely fabulous who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption you know that's the full package I think do you know that means there's nothing left for us to, to do 
We have salvation or redemption in Christ. We have sanctification in Christ. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You know, because we have been uh, brought to the light, we have the wisdom of God in Christ. Seems to me that we are dependent on Christ. Wholly dependent on Christ. Solely dependent on Christ. Because He, for us, is our everything. And that's the difference between that person and this person and this person. The one who stands in the middle. And you, of course. Because you know Jesus Christ as your Saviour. Because you might have left that camp. Or you might even have left that camp. But it's better to be in this camp. Where Christ's righteousness clothes us for eternity. So that we can enter into the presence of God with boldness. Not because of our endeavour as we've already sung. But because of His grace. And because of His mercy. Now I don't know if you noticed in the, when I read out our passage tonight from Romans. That one word is repeated 15 times in one form or another 15 times in 5 verses now that has to be significant in my book 15 times in 5 verses can anybody see what it is? I'll give you a few seconds to to have a look to see if you can uh, see where it is let me turn my, my bible to it as well Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 and there's a word that's in one form or another repeated 15 times. Judgment. No. <laughs> You're always looking for big words in it. Big words. I tell you what the word is. It's the word you. Are you there? It's the word you. Paul refers to this place and person as you. Now what I want us to do tonight is how do you know if the you that Paul is addressing isn't you. How do you know? Paul refers to this person as you. How do you know if the, if the you that Paul is addressing isn't you? You know, when we ask ourselves a number of questions, do you feel that you are a hopeless sinner whom God would have the perfect right to cast off this very minute because of the state of your heart right now that's a big question isn't it that's a big question I'll read it again do you feel that you are a hopeless sinner whom God would have the perfect right to cast off this moment because of the state of your heart right now secondly when you consider how those who are outside this church live. Do you shake your head and judge? Or do you think that my heart, by nature, is just like theirs? It just may show itself differently. And last of all, do you think that deep down, that on that day, day of judgment, that you could stand in your own righteousness, or... Have you accepted that even your own values will condemn you and that you will need to be given a right standing before God and that you could never achieve 
you said. You know, we all agree that the sinner needs a saviour. And therefore the gospel is relevant to them and constitutes their only hope of salvation and eternal life. That goes without saying. I suppose we'd all say yes. Amen. But I'll be convinced that the upright, the moral, the religious, and yes, even the godly, need the same grace and the same mercy, the same sacrifice of Christ, and the same righteousness of God. How do we tell that the you that he is addressing isn't you? I think if we opened up our eyes, and we opened up our hearts, and we had a really, really good look, he would have to say, we need the righteousness of God. We need him to clothe us in his righteousness. We are desperately in need of his salvation, of his grace, of his mercy. You know, and even if we've been saved for a, a hundred years, are we still good enough to do it on our own? Are we still righteous enough to think that we don't need him anymore? Or do we still think that it's there if it weren't for his righteousness? If it weren't for his grace, if it weren't for his love and the sacrifice that he made for us, that he'd be well within his right to say, be gone. I don't want you. Do you know we are saved by grace? We stand in grace. We'll go to heaven in grace. We'll stay in heaven by grace. There's nothing that we can do of our own. But the good news is that Christ has done everything for us. And when we realize that, no one, it might come as a revelation to us. We might come to think that we're not so good as we thought we were when we come in. But that would be a good thing. I finish with these words. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, wouldn't it be great if it finished by there? If we could become the righteousness of God. Thanks, Lord, for a clean slate. Thanks, Lord, for a new start. Thanks, Lord, for brushing me down and picking me up and sending me on my way. Now I'm walking in your righteousness. No, it says, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, it's always in Him. It's never in us. It's always in Him. And therefore, like you say, we've said it so often, this place should be full of people worshipping God because He has done something absolutely mind-blowing, incredible, because of His love and because of His grace. And tomorrow, He'll do the same thing. And the next day, he done the same thing. No one, however far back we go, it was Him doing the same thing. It wasn't me being the best I could. It was Him being Him and then being righteous before God. We owe Him so much. And that's why we worship Him. That's why we sing His praises. That's why we give Him glory. And that's why we serve Him like we do. Not because we want to win His favour, but because we've got His favour. And I pray that we would understand that.
I hope we will understand the message uh, that God's word has brought to us tonight.